Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie Bedinsky. We at Standing for Truth are dedicated to defending the truth of biblical creation. We also host debates interviews, lectures, and more. And so if you enjoy this content, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. And also please share around this content as the truth is so incredibly important. One of the many ways we defend the truth of biblical creation is by inviting and hosting some really awesome guests here on the program. And today it is a privilege to once again have Jay Siegert here with me for an important show. Today's program is titled Scientific Evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. And before uh, I hand it over to Jay uh, for his much anticipated presentation, I understand many of you has been, have been looking forward to this as I certainly have as well. So I wanna give our guests an appropriate introduction here. And uh, Jay Siegert is an international speaker and author, and he is the managing director for the Starting Point Project. He holds degrees in both physics and engineering technology from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and John Brown University, respectively. He also serves on the board of directors for Logos Research Associates. He is a former adjunct speaker for Creation Ministries International and has been speaking on the authority of scripture for over 36 years. Jay has a passion for helping Christians strengthen their faith while also offering a gracious challenge to the sincere skeptic. Jay, thank you again for giving us your time for today's important program. Yeah, it's great to be back on the program, and it's a privilege, and I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. So am I. I do want to uh, remind the audience that, uh, you know, as I've already iterated, you were here about a month ago for an awesome presentation. And so anybody who's new to the channel, we've got a lot of new uh, subscribers since then, please check the description box for all of the uh, relevant links for uh, you know Jay Seeger, including his uh, past presentation with us. So Jay, I'll just kind of hand it over to you and um, the floor is yours. We can get right into okay. it. Well, again, appreciate being on the program. Appreciate everyone taking time to watch this. I hope that that will be very encouraging to your faith. And if you're a skeptic out there, I'm even more honored that you're tuning in because there's got to be other things maybe you'd rather. Hopefully, this will be a gracious challenge just to get you to think about things that maybe you haven't heard before. So with that, I in a second, I'm going to share the screen. I'm basically doing PowerPoint because I'm not that interesting. So I want you to see the visuals. <laughs> we'll go through the visuals of the PowerPoint here with this presentation, looking at scientific evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, answering the bigger question of, how do we know the Bible's truly from God, not just another religious book? So we'll do that when we end. I'll stop the sharing. We'll go back 
and we'll have a little bit of time for some live Q&A before I have to take off for a, another meeting here. But let me get started with sharing my screen here and switching over to the PowerPoint. And you should be seeing it shortly. Yes. You yeah. should have the, uh, the title screen there, Scientific Evidence for the Inspiration of Scripture. That looks good, Don? Looks very good, Jay. All right, excellent. So um, I put this talk together quite a while ago, and it just became really, really popular because as much as we wonder about the whole creation evolution controversy, even more fundamental to Christianity is how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? So we're going to be looking at this just from one particular angle with this presentation of the scientific evidence. And for those of you who haven't heard me speak before, I'm going to brush over my background really quickly. I usually tell people that they don't know me from a hole in the ground. So uh, I was raised in a Christian home, and you can clearly see that that is a Christian home. And I went to our public school system all the way through high school. When I graduated, I went to a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering, got a degree there, but then became more interested in physics. And I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater here in Wisconsin, where I live, uh, to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit, going from the smaller Christian college where my engineering professors opened up every class in prayer to the large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. Uh, they were all evolutionists, again, some were atheists, and they were telling me that I was wrong about everything that I believed. And I knew what I believed, but I didn't know why I couldn't defend the Christian worldview. So God put it on my heart to start looking into things. I did. That was 37 years ago. So I've been uh, researching and speaking for 37 years and went into full-time ministry a little over 15 years ago. The ministry we call the Starting Point Project. It's all about our starting point. Everyone starts somewhere with the belief system. It's an entirely different talk, so I'm not going to go down that path right now. Uh, but along the way, I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. Uh, they recently bumped me up to, to vice president. I don't think we've even updated our website for that yet. But um, the founder of the group, Dr. John Sanford, he's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented something called the gene gun that inserts genes into the DNA. Worldwide famous for that. Very brilliant scientist, but very humble man, very godly man. And then um, also Dr. John Baumgartner, he's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Uh, even secular geologists will use that model. So it's just kind of off the charts brilliant. There's myself and three other board members. And I always jokingly say out of all six board members, if they were here right now, they'd be the first to admit I am the tallest. So uh, it's just humbling being around these guys, but I get to pick their brain and then translate it into something we call English. So with that, let's jump into this presentation, Scientific Evidence for the Inspiration of the Bible. As I travel around, I ask Christians a question. Why are you a Christian? And they'll often say, well, because I believe the Bible. Fair enough. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because I'm a Christian. And round and round. Um, if we don't go any further than this, we pretty much just have a blind faith and there's no reason anyone else should believe it. So we need to go further than just saying we believe the Bible because we're a Christian and we're Christian because we believe the Bible, especially for our own children if we have any. 
Now, as part of a background for this talk, I'm going to play a short clip of a radio interview. And here's the background. This show is hosted by an atheist. It's his show. The caller is a pastor. The first voice you hear will be the atheist host. The second voice is the on the phone call. That's the pastor. And they're discussing the existence of God. So we'll play it. It's about a minute or so, and then we'll discuss it. So you disagree because you're you're convinced, probably because of Romans 1, that everybody knows that God exists. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe Romans 1? Uh, because of the Bible. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? I uh, wasn't necessarily prepared for that particular question. Um, you're a preacher and you're not prepared for a question on why you believe the Bible? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I mean, this, this to me is like the, the basics. What, what, why would anybody believe? Why, would I, why should I care what the Bible is? The, the, reason, the reason why I'm not prepared for that particular question is because you didn't answer what I had to say. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I might have missed a question. What was the question? Because all I heard was you saying you disagreed. Uh, I was trying to make a point to you. It wasn't necessarily a question. My point was... Well, then how can you accuse me of not answering your question if you didn't ask the question? Your uh, point is that everybody knows that God exists, and I don't agree with that. And I'm asking you to prove that it's true. It's not about proving that it's true. You're then, you're, then you we can never prove that it's true. Then we are in an impasse. And thank you for acknowledging that you can never prove it's true, which demonstrates it's irrational. I'm going to have to ask you to call back because we've run out of time. Wow. So there you have it. You know, we could close in prayer right now. That'd be pretty depressing. Um, I actually think that atheist host was very gracious. And I think most pastors would have a better response. But the bigger question for us this evening is, what would be your, the listeners, response had you called in that atheist radio program and the host asked you that question? What would you say? How would you respond? And as I travel around, um, my audiences look at me like a deer in the headlights at this point. They they don't know. They're stunned. They're nervous, thinking, I don't know what I would say. Help, what should I say? Well, the rest of this presentation is what our response should be as Christians when people like that atheist ask a very straightforward, very reasonable question as to why we believe what we believe. And my experience is that way too many Christians are not prepared to have a simple answer as to why do we believe that God exists and why do we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So I think we need to up our game a little bit because these questions that skeptics ask are usually really good questions, and I think they're pretty sincere in asking them. And I also have a quiz before we get any further. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen and ask if you can see where it's found. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. Now, some people will say, oh, is that, uh, is that Isaiah? Like, nope. Jeremiah? Nope. Psalms? Nope. Here's the answer. Second Nephi 2.26. And some of you are thinking, second what? It's the Book of Mormon. And you might think, oh, that's really weird. But here's the bigger question. How do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired Word of God? 
they believe it is, says right on the cover, another testament of Jesus Christ that they got from the angel Moroni who wrote it down in golden tablets and given to Joseph Smith and on and on. Interesting story. We're, we're not here to talk about the Book of Mormon so much, but how do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired word of God? Well, it's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. How do you know the Bible is? Because you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because you believe the Bible. What about the Book of Mormon? It's not. Why is it not? Because the Bible is, and round and round. We don't always have the best response to that. And again, we don't even need to pick on Mormonism. There's no shortage of religious books out there. Here's just a few samples. How do you know which of these are the inspired Word of God? Maybe they all are. Maybe none of them are. Maybe just two. Which two? How would you know? That's an interesting question. A few years ago, a friend of mine contacted me and asked me to go to a debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the topic was, would the world be better off without religion? It's between an atheist and a Christian. I told my friend, yeah, I'll go, go with you, but I would never be part of that debate, I said. He said, why not? I said, because I'm not a religious person. He said, what are you talking about? You're traveling around the world talking about God and Jesus and the Bible and creation. Here's why I say I'm not a religious person. I think religion is man's idea of God. The reason we have so many different religions is there are so many different people, and they all, all have their own idea of who God is, what he is, why we're here. I'm not really that interested in finding out what everyone else thinks about God. But on the other hand, I think the Bible is God's idea of God, and that fascinates me to no end. So while I say I'm not a religious person, I am a Christian and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Now, I realize that Christianity is considered to be one of the world's religions. So in that sense, okay, fine, I'm a religious person, but I like to make the distinction between man's idea of God and God's idea about himself, which makes it even more important for us to answer that question. How do we know the Bible is God's idea about himself and not just another religious book's? book amongst many, many others. Now, some of you may have a book at home that was autographed by the author. It's pretty cool. You can show it to your friends, say, yeah, I met the author, he signed it. If you don't have one, you can buy one of my books, I'll sign it. <laughs> but wouldn't it be cool to have an autographed copy of the Bible? Kind of makes your head spin. Well, I actually think we do have an autographed copy of the Bible. I think God's signature is all over his word. Well, how would we know? Well, there are four basic tests you can apply to any religious writing out there to see if it shows evidence of having been written and inspired by God. These are not special Bible tests. These are tests you can apply to any religious writing out there whatsoever. First of all, internal consistency. Does the book you're looking at, whatever it is, does it contradict itself? If it does, that's good evidence God didn't write that because he wouldn't contradict himself. Historical accuracy. If the book you're looking at gets history wrong, that's good evidence God did not write that. Prophetic accuracy. If the book you're looking at makes predictions about the future and they've been proven false, it's great evidence God didn't write that. He would know the future. And lastly, scientific accuracy. If the book you're looking at, whatever it is, makes statements that can actually be tested directly by science and it's been proven false, that would be pretty good evidence God didn't write that because God would know science. With the limited time we have, we're going to focus on this last one, scientific accuracy. We also call it scientific foreknowledge. 
What's the point here? Well, the Bible was written a long time ago. Old Testament roughly between 1500 and 400 BC. The New Testament roughly between 40 and 100 AD. That's long before we had microscopes and telescopes. Yet there are things in the Bible that modern scientists are discovering and they're saying, wow, these guys were actually right. But they couldn't have known that back then. And that's very true. These writers could not possibly have had scientific knowledge about these things that they wrote about unless God actually inspired them in what they wrote. They wouldn't have known it on their own. And that's the whole point is this is evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Bill Nye, the science guy. He's certainly no friend of the Bible or Christianity or creation. He said, I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world, in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can. We need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. So what's he saying? He's saying if you as an adult want to reject evolution and believe in this fairy tale of creation, I guess that's okay, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. If your kids don't believe in evolution, they won't be able to do science. They won't be able to land on Mars someday or solve more diseases, disease problems and cancer and all that because you can't do science if you don't believe in evolution. That's what he's saying. Now, Bill Nye is not a scientist. He, he's an engineer, but he's a pretty smart guy, and he's entitled to his opinion. I'm going to give you a quote who comes from someone who actually is a scientist. You're not a creationist or a Christian. This comes from Dr. Mark Kirshner. He's the founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. You can't be too dumb and have that position. This is what he said. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. What's he saying? He's saying these men and women do their jobs all day long, all lifelong, independent of whether or not they believe in evolution. It has nothing to do with that. And I think this guy's in a better position to comment on science. But then you may be asked, well, which do you believe? Do you believe the Bible or do you believe science? Well, if you say you believe the, let me back up. If you say you believe the Bible, that implies that you don't believe science. And the skeptic's going to say, you know what? I, I could have sworn I saw you on your cell phone earlier today, but that's right. You don't believe in science that made that cell phone. So then you say, well, of course I believe in science, but that implies you don't believe the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible, you can't be a Christian. So it's an awkward question for many Christians to answer. Well, it's because there's a hidden assumption here. The assumption is that science has disproved the Bible. If that were true, then you have to make a choice. Which are you going to believe? But it's a false assumption. Science has not disproved the Bible at all. The truth is most major areas of science we have today were founded by Bible-believing Christians. If you'd like some examples, I happen to bring a few along. Antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics, 
hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, verba, paleontology, and the scientific method all founded by Bible-believing Christians. No real scientist would say that no Christian believes the Bible because this is where science came from. It was birthed out of the Christian community. So anyone who says that, they don't only not understand science, they don't even know history because this is where science had its birth, out of the Christian community. Further truth, not only is belief in evolution not required to do science, believing in evolution actually gets in the way of doing good science. It is a hindrance. Here's one example, the concept of vestigial organs. These things are supposedly leftover remnants of evolutionary history. Here's one of the leading evolutionists, Jerry Coyne. We humans have many vestigial features proving that we evolved. The most popular is the appendix. Our appendix is simply the remnant of an organ that was critically important to our leaf-eating ancestors, but is of no real value to us. In fact, scientists had a list of 86 examples, things in our body that were useless, leftover remnants of evolution. Well, God wouldn't design you with 86 things in your body that don't do anything. This would be powerful evidence for evolution. In fact, these examples were used at the famous monkey trial, Scopes monkey trial in 1925. Well, since then, scientists have studied this list and they've dwindled it down just a little bit. Yeah, down to zero. They have found a use for every single one of those examples, including the appendix. It's part of the immune system. Can you live without your appendix? Yes, you can. You can also live without your arms. Doesn't mean they don't have a purpose. In fact, doctors today are very hesitant to take your appendix out unless it's going to burst. Then, yeah, you might want to get it out of there. But now they know it has a purpose. But it was belief in evolution to say, just yank it out. It's useless. It's not doing anything. Whereas a creationist would say, hold on a second. We might not fully understand this yet but we believe it was designed by God, so let's do further research. Further research exposed the fact that, yes, it does have a purpose. One more example, the concept of junk DNA. When scientists were looking at DNA, it seemed initially that only 2% of our DNA did anything. It coded to make proteins. The other 98%, they felt, was junk. It didn't do anything. Proof of evolution. They've studied it further. Now they know the 98% they were calling junk. It's more complex than the 2%. It's instructions telling the 2% what to do, and it's blowing people away. Cause one evolutionist to say this, the failure to recognize the implications of non-coding DNA, that's what they were calling junk. It'll go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. They're saying that was a huge mistake to ever call that junk, but it was belief in evolution to get him to write it off, whereas a creationist would say, let's keep studying it. It was designed by God. So people then make the claim, but the Bible's not a science textbook. And I would completely agree with that. It's not a science textbook, and I'm glad it's not, because then it would be harder to understand. Fewer people would read it, and more importantly, it would have to be corrected and updated constantly like science textbooks. So while the Bible is not a science textbook, it provides a framework through which we can properly understand and interpret science because facts don't speak for themselves. 
all facts have to be interpreted. And the way you interpret facts is by using a framework or your set of pre-existing beliefs, your worldview, what you already believe. You use those beliefs to look at facts and come to a conclusion what you think those facts mean. The Bible provides a phenomenal framework to do science. In fact, it's it provides the only accurate framework for properly understanding science. For example, the Bible does comment on astronomy. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe and his fingerprints are all over it. The secular astronomers will say, no, look up in the sky, see those swirling gases? That's the birth of a star. It's so beautiful, they say. They get very emotional. You know what they're seeing? Swirling gases. Yeah, but you have to understand, gravity is pulling these particles together to form a star. Gravity acts on particles and wants to pull them together. But the closer the particles get together, the more gas pressure there is. And gas pressure is much stronger than gravity. They will not pull together. Okay, you're right. Well, what happened was there was this other star out there that exploded. And that force pushed those other particles together. Nice story. I have a question. Where did that star come from that exploded? Well, that was swirling gases, and there was another star out there that exploded to force that one together. <laughs> I got another question. Do you have any idea what it might be? Where did that other star come from? They can't even get the process started. The laws of physics mitigate against it. Jeremiah 33, 22. As of host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant. Jeremiah, writing over two and a half thousand years ago, said the stars are un countable. That made no sense to him because he could look up in the night sky, see pretty much the same stars we see, which is about 3,000. From any point on the earth, you can see about 3,000 stars. Why would Jeremiah look up and see a countable number of stars and say they are uncountable? Well, today, with telescopes, modern astronomers tell us, I don't know, there's 10 trillion trillion stars out there. They're guessing. They don't know, but they know there are a lot of stars out there. They are uncountable. We know that now because we have a telescope. Yeah, just like Jeremiah said over two and a half thousand years ago when he didn't have a telescope because God told him what to write. Today, we do have telescopes like the Hubble telescope. And we have something called the Hubble Deep Field. Astronomers wonder about the night sky. Um, is it the same everywhere we look? Or are there areas where there's lots of stars and galaxies and other areas that are empty? Well, they took the Hubble telescope, focused it on a little spot, little orange spot there in the sky, which is about 124 millionth of the entire sky. Tiny, tiny speck. Focus the telescope there. Leave the aperture open for a few days to see if anything develops. Is it really empty and dark or is there something there? This is what developed in that shape. Three thousand stars. But guess what? Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. 3,000 galaxies in an area that looked empty. And they're guessing that each of those galaxies has about 100 billion stars in them. Then there was a Hubble Extreme Deep Field. That's one thirty-two millionth of the night sky. They discovered five and a half thousand galaxies, each of which has about 100 billion stars in it. 
And then more recently, we've had the Hubble Legacy Field. They've discovered 265,000 galaxies, each of which has probably about 100 billion stars. Are the stars uncountable? Yep. Just like Jeremiah said a long time ago when he didn't have that telescope. <laughs> the Bible also comments on geology. An atheist can go to Grand Canyon and see that there are many layers in the earth today. A Christian can go to the Grand Canyon and see there are many layers in the earth today. This is a fact. We can all see there are layers there today. How did the layers get there? That's another question. Because the atheist didn't see them being deposited, but neither did the Christian. So we have to figure out, why are we looking at all these layers pretty much all over the earth? Grand Canyon, one of the best places to see them. But how come these layers are there? Well, guess what? The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand that. Genesis 6, 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. The Bible, specifically in Genesis 6 through 8, talks about a worldwide flood. If there really was a worldwide flood in our history, what would we expect to see from that? We would expect to see sedimentary layers laid down by water all over the planet, probably filled with lots of fossils because things that were living would have gotten buried. Guess what we see? We see these sedimentary layers laid down all over the planet, laid down catastrophically by water, and they have billions and billions of fossils in them. The Bible helps us understand geology. <clears throat> Quick side note. I actually lead tours of the Grand Canyon. I think it meant, I mentioned it in my last talk. Uh, we actually spend one day on the Colorado River going around uh, this famous horseshoe bend here in rafts. So we actually raft the Colorado River. And just for scale purpose, that would be the raft way down there, very tiny. It's about 1,100 foot drop from the surface down to the river at this point. And we spend one day walking on the rim, the Kaibab limestone, looking one mile down to the Colorado River. And there's a lot of dirt gone because there was a worldwide flood that deposited the layers. And part of that flood carved them out catastrophically. So all along the way, we share scientific evidence that there was truly a worldwide flood, just like the Bible says. You don't need to be embarrassed about that portion of the Bible. You could say, bring it on. There's so much evidence for it. Afterwards, we stop and see some dinosaur footprints, which you can walk right around. They're really, really cool on an Indian reservation. We also stop for a photo op. The entire group gets off the bus and we stand uh, under this rock for a nice group photo there. It's pretty cool. Sometimes we stay longer and go through Antelope Canyon. That can be uh, added to some of the trips. So it's a beautiful canyon right up uh, on the border of Arizona and Utah. So I would say grab a brochure, but you can't do that. So for anyone watching, what you'd have to do is just go to our website, thestartingpointproject.com, and you can look under our events, and you'll see Grand Canyon. You'll see details, detours, uh, details, sorry, of the tours that we give. So contact me sometime if you want more information on that. Back to our talk. The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand biology, and I could go on for hours and hours and hours on this. Uh, Nehemiah. 9.6. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is the one who created life and his fingerprints are all over it. Today we have something called the law of biogenesis, which states that life only comes from pre-existing life and always comes from pre-existing life. 
So why do we teach in all of our public school systems that life came from non-living chemicals 3.8 billion years ago? Um, this principle is so consistent, they made a law out of it. Nothing has ever violated that. It's the law of biogenesis. Um, an evolutionist actually said this, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith. Like, wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. They're in the laboratory proving things, right? No, he said they have faith. And not only is it a faith, it is a blind faith, and it goes against everything that we're learning about chemistry and biology. So they might believe that it came from dead chemicals, but the science that we're doing today screams it didn't happen. It cannot happen. Uh, but they keep teaching their narrative. Genesis 6, 124. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Ten times in Genesis 1. The Bible says that God created creatures to reproduce after their kind. Can they produce a variety? Oh yeah, great variety, but always within limits. Today, you can actually breed dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves. They can all breed together. Well, look at them. They look pretty much like the same animal. They're the same kind of animal, and they can interbreed. And when you breed a dog and a wolf, you get a wolf dog. I actually mentioned this in the last talk, but you can't breed that wolf and a dog and get an ostrich because these creatures don't have genetic information to make beaks and feathers. So while we can get a wonderful variety, it's always within distinct genetic limits. And that's what we see over and over and over. Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is very important for life. In fact, each human red blood cell contains about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin carrying oxygen throughout your body. If you had a slight amount less, you'd be dead. What's interesting about that is doctors used to drain blood out of people's bodies. Largely how he died. He got pneumonia. So he went to the doctor. They go, oh, he's got bad blood. They drained some blood out of him. And he got sicker. Like, wow, he's really sick. They drained some more blood. He got even sicker. They're like, wow, this guy's really sick. They ended up draining almost a gallon of blood out of him, and he died. Today we know better. You do not do that. The life of the flesh is in the blood, just like the Bible says. The reason I have a barber pole up on the screen is you used to be able to go to the barber to have your blood drained. They call it bloodletting. They would give you a cylinder to grasp, make a fist, cut your arm, drain some blood, then wrap a towel around your arm to help stop the bleeding and absorb some blood. Sometimes they would hang the used towels on these cylinders and the wind would catch it and the wind would wrap the towel around the pole. That's why today barber poles have red stripes. A little bit of free trivia for you. I won't charge you for that one. But that's truly why there are red stripes on barber poles. Exodus 15, 26. This is one of my all-time favorites. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. Okay, what's going on here? We'll back up big picture. God creates everything, and it's perfect. He creates Adam and Eve, and they're perfect. They sin and disobey God. They get kicked out of the garden. God could have just smashed them and started over. But he says, no. I love him too much. I got a plan. Uh, I'm going to send my own son to die on a cross to pay for their sins. 
And that plan included God choosing a group of people through which his son, the Messiah, would be born. God chooses the Hebrew people who become the Israelites and the Jews. The entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan. The entire Old Testament is also Satan, who hates God, trying to ruin God's plan. So the entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out the Jews because if he can, the Messiah can't come. And God is also protecting his people. In this passage, Moses is saying, listen to the advice God is giving us about these health practices, and we won't see the diseases that are affecting the nations around us. But we know from the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt, you. <laughs> now today, if someone goes to a university and they get a PhD, and then they end up writing some books, you would expect a lot of the information in those books would come from what they learned at the university. That's just kind of how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt, you, and then he writes five books. Yeah, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own. And that's what skeptics say. Moses was an ignorant goat herder, just scribbling some stuff down. He made up another religion. It's just one more book to choose from today. Okay, let's take a look at what this Egyptian wisdom is that Moses was educated in. This is the Ebers Papyrus written about 1550 BC, contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies. One of which was if you got a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Modern scientists say, yikes, you don't want to do that. It causes tetanus spores. You can get lockjaw. You could get very sick. You could even die from this. So wherever they got this from, it's just wrong. That's the kind of stuff Moses was educated in. So do we see things like this in the Bible? We should if Moses wrote it on his own. Let's take a look at what we actually see. Moses wrote about touching a dead body. Now today we know about germ theory and bacteria, especially with COVID and all that. Uh, you don't want to touch a dead animal. You could get sick from that. You could maybe even die. Well, this is what Moses wrote a long time ago in the book of Numbers chapter 19. Whoever touches a body of uh, dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself in the waters of purification on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. Okay, what's this water purification he's talking about? Well, he tells us a few verses earlier. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, and throw them on the burning heifer or cow. That sounds bizarre. Now, many of you watching this are probably too young, and plus, uh, this is a reference to a, an American television show, but some of you may have heard of the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, there was a character on there named Granny. She was always in the kitchen throwing some things in this huge pot, putting some possum in there and stirring it around, doing weird things. That's what this Bible passage sounds like. It just sounds like some crazy concoction, throwing miscellaneous things in there and stirring around. That's what it sounds like. But modern scientists say, no, that's not weird at all. That's really interesting. And here's why. 
the cedar wood and the cow ashes combined to make lye. That's caustic soda. We also call it soap. You touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The hyssop plant converts into thiamol. That's isopropyl alcohol. It kills bacteria. If you touch a dead body, killing bacteria would come in handy. The scarlet wool forms a gritty substance, like an SOS pad you might use in your kitchen, or if you ever use something called orange goop, it has pumice in it, and it can get grease out of your fingernails and hands. That's what the scarlet wool does. And then applying this on the third and the seventh day, bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait a few days for this to dry out. Then you apply this, wait a few more days for it to dry out, and you apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say this is a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics that we create today. Did Moses know anything about bacteria and germ theory and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is God saying, hey, Mo, I want you to write some things down. And he writes this down. And Moses says, that was great. You got anything else? And God says, yeah, I got another one. So here's just one more example as we wind down here. Moses wrote about a certain Jewish tradition in Genesis chapter 17. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why did Moses say the eighth day? He could have said the third week, the fifth year. He could have said anything, but he said the eighth day. Well, modern scientists have discovered some really interesting things about blood clotting. Um, there are two major elements in our bloodstream that are necessary to clot your blood. We have vitamin K and prothrombin. Actually, on a molecular level, there are about two dozen events that have to occur in proper sequence to clot your blood. If you miss one of them, you would bleed to death. Well, how did that evolve over millions of years where some creature um, had event A? That doesn't do anything. What if it had A, B, and C? That doesn't do anything. What if it had A, B, C, D, E, F, G? doesn't do anything. What if it had... A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, R, R, W, Z, Z, T. No, it has to have two dozen in proper sequence. You cannot afford to evolve that one piece at a time by accident over millions of years. It's a design feature. But back to the larger picture here, vitamin K and prothrombin. Scientists have discovered that vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days five and seven. That's when it kicks in. Prothrombin looks like this if we graph it, and I will explain the graph. The line across the top is the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers across the bottom are days after birth. On day one, scientists have discovered that a baby has about 90% of its prothrombin. That's pretty high. That's not bad. But then it drops dangerously low between days two and five down to only 30%. That's not good at all. Very dangerous. <laughs> On day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life. So if you are a baby and need a surgical procedure, day eight would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K by then and you have more prothrombin than you'll ever have the rest of your entire life. 
Did Moses know anything about vitamin K or prothrombin? Obviously not. This is God saying, Mo, write it down. He writes it down. Uh, quick side note, my wife and I have two children. Um, they're 25 and 26 now, but before our son was born, my wife and I were at the hospital going through these birthing classes because this was all new to us. And the nurse said, if you have a baby boy and would like this procedure done, we'll take him down the hall and then bring him back. And I remember being very nervous thinking, shouldn't we come back on day eight? But I was too shy to say anything. Just kept talking and someone else in the class raised their hand and said, hey, nurse, you just mentioned that you're giving the baby a shot. The baby is just born. Why does it need a shot right away? She said, that's vitamin K. So today, the hospitals artificially introduce the proper amount of vitamin K instantly. And on day one, you have 90% of your prothrombin. It's not a problem. So they can perform this procedure on day one, and it certainly isn't a moral issue. So when I heard that, my hand went up right away, and I shared with the entire class what Moses wrote about circumcision in Genesis. And I don't know if they were impressed or not, but it was an opportunity to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. So wrapping this up, the Bible actually passes the test of scientific foreknowledge. In fact, it passes all four tests of internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. So the question is, do Christians have faith that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And the answer is yes, we do. But it's an incredibly reasonable faith backed up by so much evidence. So much so that if you want to believe that the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, in the immortal words of another character you probably don't know, Ricky Ricardo, <laughs> You got a lot of splaining to do. Um, how is it some guy just made up stuff and you had about actually 40 different authors making up stuff over a 1,600-year period, writing on three different continents in three different languages, covering hundreds of controversial topics, and yet they're all in agreement with each other and they get history right every single time. And 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. That's over 8,000 passages in the Bible are making predictions about the future. Some of those are for our future yet. All of the other ones have come true at every minute detail. How is that possible that these guys made all that up? Plus, they made scientific commentary that we're finding out today like, oh yeah, they were right about that too. How is it possible if they were making it up? makes a lot more sense that God was inspiring each and every one of these writers, and we can trust what they say because they not only make the statements, they give us ways of testing these things and gives us so much confidence that the Bible truly is the inspired Word of God. I have a five-part video series on the inspiration of Scripture where I go through all four of these categories, plus give some introductory information on how do we get the Bible to begin with, how was it written, when was it written, what tools did they use to write, and how was it copied over time. I answer a lot of those questions in that series. Um, very quickly, just before I stop sharing, I went over our resources uh, last time, but everything we have is, uh, as I travel, it's on our table, but for now, it's online at the startingpointproject.com. We have 11 physical DVDs, but they're also available for streaming. And that consists of 22 video sessions on 11 DVDs, but it's all streamable online. I have three different books that I've written and a few other resources online, uh, some free videos and articles that I've written that are online for free. 
uh, and then our Grand Canyon tours, which I already mentioned. So with that and with whatever time I have remaining, which is shorter than I planned, but I'm going to stop uh, sharing my screen here and we'll do just a few minutes of Q&A with the time we have remaining. Awesome. Much appreciated, uh, Jay. I got to say another fantastic presentation. And I really appreciate your visuals. I love your visuals. And I, I love the way you make these technical arguments understandable. And that way, you know, our, our brothers and sisters can can utilize those arguments, you know, in, in evangelizing and, and so on and so forth. And I must uh, point out lots of uh, great feedback in the live audience, Jay, the live chat, expressing what a blessing your presentations are. So I could talk about uh, your well, slides and arguments slides. all day. Uh, but because we've got uh, we're at the 50 minute mark and I want to wrap it up at, at the hour. Mark. So we'll just kind of get right into questions and we'll make sure that uh, we keep it to about 10 minutes. So um, as always, Jay, your presentations um, based on your previous one and this one sparks a lot of interest. So we do have questions here and um, okay, we'll put the first one up. This one comes in from Cool Jesus. This was also a question I had. So I guess I'm going to merge my question and Cool Jesus's question into one. So he asks for Jay, was it all um, slash only? Actually, no, he's got another question. So this isn't the one I was thinking of, but we can ask this one too. Was it all slash only creationist scientists who discovered that junk DNA has a purpose and vestigial organs have a function? Sure. Good question. Uh, I don't know tons of details behind this one other than I think initially it was actually the secular scientists who were discovering purposes which surprised them. The more they looked at those sections of the DNA, they thought, wow, they're being translated and RNA and all that. And they kept looking and like, wow, these are functional. These are functional. It's more and more and more. And they were admitting, okay, a large percentage of this junk is not junk. It's actually useful. And then, you know, creationists are certainly doing research as well, but that's one of the challenges creationists have is we're a much smaller group to begin with. And we're trying to raise a little bit of funds here, a little bit of there, whereas the secular scientists get money from the government, which is you know our tax dollars, and they have all the state universities doing all this research. So they can do tons of research with tons of funding where creationists have to come up with money for their own labs and their own research. And it's not whining or complaining, it's just kind of the truth. But it is encouraging knowing that the secular scientists themselves are ones who largely have discovered these functional sections of the DNA. Amen. Well said. And from my research, one thing I'll add is I find, you know, the evolutionist so-called best lines of evidence. If you Google, you know, the best evidence for common descent or you look up, you know, the evidence provided by a biologos, <clears throat> their best evidence has been overturned based on the discoveries for essentially genome wide activity. And, you know, that goes for pseudogenes, functional DNA elements, endogenous retroviruses, the, these elusive sequences. So we expected treasure and function in the genome, and that's exactly what, what, what we're finding, Jay. So great points, brother. Okay, here's the now here's the one I was thinking of. So here's a question from Cool Jesus. And uh, he asks, does Jay have any thoughts about the outer limits of kinds? I understand dogs and cats, but struggle with other stuff like palm civets slash cats or some vultures 
or an eagle kind of, if I could reword it a bit, you know, I host a lot of debates here, uh, Jay, we have an evolution debate challenge and we do them weekly. And uh, the evolutionists always ask the question, okay, if, if kind, the biblical kind is a valid category, then what are the limits of, of change within a kind? Jay, go ahead. Yeah, an interesting question, but the same question could be thrown out about what are the limits for species? Because they have a really hard time defining a species. They'll generally say that a species would be a group of individuals that is unable to breed with other groups. But the problem is dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves can all breed together. They call them different species, but yet they can breed together, and they know that. And it's I'm not even faulting them for that. It's its challenging to come up with very distinct limits and whether we can or can't define very sharply what those limits are isn't really that important. We just know there are limits and we can see boundaries and we can give whatever names we want to them. As I mentioned, the Bible isn't a science textbook. God didn't inspire these writers so that we would know the mass of an electron was 9.1 times 10 to the negative 31st kilograms. That's not the point to go the granular details of science, but it gives us these larger principles within which we know there are truths. There are, the Bible uses that word kind, but it doesn't define it specifically with scientific terms. And it's not important for us to figure out exactly what those limits are. What it tells us is apparently there are limits. And God choose, chose the word bearman, you know, kind in the Bible to say there are limits. And when we've looked at biology, we've seen, wow, there really are limits. We're not quite sure where they are because sometimes two things end up breeding together. We didn't think they could, and now we know they can, or things we thought should be able to don't. So we're discovering more and more, but the barrier is a much bigger problem for evolution because you got to go from a single cell to a human being with basically no barriers. It just keeps crossing barriers constantly for millions of years, where at the creation model, you'd say things were just, were created distinctly, can make a variety within a group, but overall, they're going to be going downhill. One other talk really quick, I say the big picture for evolution is we would expect things to be going uphill over time, getting better and better, more and more complex, adding new information. The creation model would be just the opposite, starting out perfect and slowly going downhill over time, destroying information. That's what biology screams. We're headed downhill. Along the way, we see variety, but it's not at the behest of adding new genetic information, it's shuffling or destroying information. Amen. Well said. Even when you analyze these changes on the genotypic level, you find that they're uh, typically reductive, as you pointed out, you know, a loss of allelic variability. And so kinds or creatures are, are uh, hitting walls, barriers. So it's, it's the opposite of what large scale evolution would require. I really appreciate that answer, Jay. Uh, here's the next one. <clears throat> So skeptics like to say we creationists misrepresent the definition of vestigial structures. I see this all the time. I find it to be a rescue device, but I'd be curious as to your um, thoughts on it. Rather than being useless, functionless leftovers, um, they'll say they are structures that have altered their function or even gained a function, not necessarily functionless structures, essentially. Uh, Jay, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's I've I've heard those arguments before, and it's basically, and I I don't want to paint too broad of a brush, but most evolutionists would never say they would ever discover any evidence that would go against evolution because whatever they see, they will redefine things to fit to say, well, that proves evolution. Whether you find something that proves evolution, we don't find it. Well, that proves evolution. So when they're saying 
that vestigial organs aren't necessarily useless things, there's some point to that. They may just not know what the function is, or they may say it's changed function, but they can't tell us what the function was before and what caused that change. And the biggest thing with the whole thing is we are not seeing new genetic information building, working together to create these new vast structures, you know, uh, nervous systems and eyeballs and all that. We are seeing variations. We are seeing loss of function, blind cave fish. Well, that's proof of evolution. Something lost its sight. And even in instances where they say something regained it, the information was dormant. And so the biggest problem for them is they're not able to show where is the information actually coming from to drive evolution. If you're going to start with a single-celled organism, end up with a human being, you have to add an astronomical amount of new genetic information and coordinated information over time. And they have no engine to drive that mutations will not give you that. Even if they want to say, well, this one example here, this mutation, it seems like it's novel. It's new. You, you could even give them that. Say, fine, you got one little tiny piece here. Do you know how much information you need to transform even a, an ape-like creature into a human? It's called a waiting time problem. I won't go into that. Maybe I'll save that for next time. <laughs> oh, yeah, the waiting time problem is one of uh, you know my personal favorite arguments. <clears throat> I think it's a fatal blow to uh, common descent. So great answers so far, Jay. We've got uh, just a couple more here, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, time has flown by with you, and as a... Uh, we got a fantastic live chat. So um, here we go. Super chat that comes in. Want to make sure I get uh, to this one. Jungle Jargon, $5 super chat. He asks, can matter and energy make or direct slash order themselves by themselves? Does every physical thing really come from a greater power? Great question. And uh, the answer depends on who you're talking to. One of the most interesting things is science deals with things that we can observe. If you can't observe it or test it, it's not maybe technically scientific. Every one of our experiences said that matter only comes from pre-existing matter and energy. You can convert energy into matter, matter into energy, but you can't get something out of nothing. The first law of thermodynamics, they made a law out of it because nothing has ever violated that. Even where they say there are these virtual particles coming in and out of existence, they say they're coming out of this quantum vacuum. A quantum vacuum isn't nothing. Lawrence Krauss, when he was pushed on, how do you get this universe out of nothing? Because they have to say it came from nothing. They can't say it came from something because then you just ask them, well, where did that something come from? They would have an eternal, you know, something. We have an eternal God, which has revealed himself. And there's a lot to go down that path. But because we're short on time here, they have to address how do you get something out of nothing? And Lawrence Krauss Basically, I have to paraphrase what he said. He said that people will philosophically talk about nothing being the absence of anything. It really is nothing. He says, I don't care what philosophers call nothing. He said, if the nothing of reality is filled with stuff, then I'll go with that. He needs nothing to have stuff in it so they can theorize how that produced the universe. But if you really do start with absolutely nothing, you will have nothing forever. You won't even have time in with which anything can occur. Real quick, uh, Stephen Hawking, he was one of the world's leading theoretical physicists. He had to answer that question too. He said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. 
That's an exact quote, as best I can remember. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So what I tell my audiences is, is let's take a look at what he said. Let's temporarily forget about how brilliant he was. The guy was brilliant. Let's just forget about that and just analyze what he actually said because statements have to stand on their own. They're not true because whoever said them is smart. He said, because there is, I'm going to reward it slightly for, for discussing this. Because there is something, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Well, wait a minute. If you have something, you don't have nothing. And what was the something he mentioned? The law of gravity. What is the law of gravity? It's not a physical thing that you can weigh and paint and bend. It's a description of how the universe operates. But you can't have a, a description of how the universe operates unless you have a universe to describe. But if you have a universe to describe, you're not creating it out of nothing. It already exists. So even other atheists called them out on that, saying that your answer doesn't make any sense. So they really struggle. There is nothing within science or physics that could explain how you get something out of nothing. Particles can't direct themselves. You would need other particles to direct them. They would have to have what we call volition, that they would want to do something. So it makes much more sense within the Christian worldview that God himself, who is eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing, called into existence matter and energy, and he created laws that would guide them. So most of our day-to-day -day experiences are guided by laws he set in place. He doesn't need to perform miracles every second of the day to get water to freeze. It's following the laws that he created. Occasionally, he has stepped in throughout history and performed a miracle for various purposes, and we read a lot about that in Scripture. But uh, the more we look at science, the more it backs up what the Bible's been telling us all along. Amen. Well said, Jay. You know, you are a wealth of information on so many different topics, so I appreciate that. And I want to encourage people to check out your website because I really love your section, uh, Question of the Month. So if you scroll through there, you get like some really awesome questions on a whole uh, bunch of topics. So I do want to respect your time, uh, brother. We are over the hour mark. So what we're going to do is, is wrap it up here. And I want to thank the audience for all the questions that they did ask. And what I can do is at least keep them in mind or save them for hopefully the next time that we have uh, Jay on the program. Jay, you are a fan favorite already uh, with two appearances. So I want to hand it to you, Jay, for any final words, final thoughts before we uh, conclude the program. Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm honored to be on the program. I would just, my uh, warning to everyone is you can hear what I'm saying, but don't trust me. <laughs> hear what I say, check it. If you're a Christian, check it against scripture is what I'm saying, consistent with what you read in the Bible and allow God's Holy Spirit to, to direct you into the truth as you study his word, because the Holy Spirit's a lot sharper than I am wherever will be. So my job is just to direct you back to God's word. And if you're watching this broadcast and you're on the fence or strongly skeptical, I am way honored that you were here and would listen to me go blah, blah, blah. I thank you for your time. And I my prayer for you is that you would just allow yourself to ask questions. Say, you know what, this is all really interesting. And you might even want to go as far as to say, God, I don't know that I believe in you, but if you really exist, I do want to know. God will work with that. I guarantee you God will work with that to start opening your eyes and there's a whole new world out there. So I appreciate you allowing me to be part of the program and look forward to future programs as well. Absolutely, Jay. Anytime I could listen to you go blah, blah, blah all day. So, <laughs> so much great information, so many great visuals. And uh, I'm definitely going to be rewatching this presenta uh, presentation. So I do want to uh, thank everybody in the audience for joining us. 
Thank you for your feedback, questions, and please share around this content because the truth is so incredibly important. Uh, Jay, God bless. And to the audience, God bless as well. Standing for Truth is out.